You know, Forrest Gump's mom used to tell him that life was like a box of chocolates, right? Well, I'm sad to inform you, but life is really just a series of choices that we have to make, right? I was doing a little research, and, and uh, the, it's, obviously it's very difficult to estimate, but they believe that in the course of a single day, the average person makes, and they use the word remotely conscious choices, we make up to 35,000 of those every single day. Now, those could be significant ones, like should I propose today to my, you know, to my, my girlfriend or my boyfriend, whatever, you know, kind of idea, all the way down to ones like should I cross my legs, should I uncross my legs, should I do this and that. And we, we have all these choices that we make, and actually the research goes on to show that we make conscious choices, you know, and many of them are just instinctive, but we make almost 5,000 conscious choices a day. What are you going to have for breakfast? Do you wear the argyle socks or do you wear the brown socks? You know, those kinds of choices. But, and, and believe it or not, and I, they say there's almost 200 choices a day that we make related to food. Now, some of us may be higher than that, some of us must be lower than that, but 200 choices a day related to food. But as you continue to boil it down, they, they they, most research shows that on an average day, the typical person makes somewhere between 30 and 70 judgment choices a day. And what I mean by that is the choices like, how should I respond to this email? And what should I say to this person? You know, how, how, how should I handle this situation at work? And they make... Somewhere between 30 and 70 of those a day. It was interesting, back in 2013, there was an article written in a British newspaper called the Daily Mirror. They said that their calculations is they basically, people made 27 judgment choices a day. And when they added that up over the course of a lifetime, it added up to 773,000 choices, judgment calls that we would make in our lifetime. 773,000. No wonder we're always tired, right? I mean, it's just, you know... But what was even more interesting was that they said that the average person would come to regret 143,000 of those 773. Now, if you do the math, that comes out to 18.5%. Okay? So you just kind of round it up. That means one choice out of five we're going to regret. That, that's kind of troubling, isn't it? I mean, obviously in the mix in there, there's, there's some great choices, Right? You know, one of my greatest choices was to, to, to ask Christina to marry her, and one of her biggest regrets is that she said yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, 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 how that kind of works. But you, you, you get the kind of idea, you know, that goes with that. But, but there, there are a lot of choices that we make along the way that people come to regret. I remember when Christina and I were living in Texas, and I was going to seminary, one of the things we did a couple of holiday seasons is that we drove up to Missouri to where my paternal grandmother lived. Her name was Noda Davidson. And she was, she was an old farm girl, right? And she got married when she was 16 years age, of age and to my, my grandfather, uh, Ewing Davidson. And I remember one time sitting in her little running living room. It was one of these kind of like, just it was just a stone house, a rectangular. You could stand in the front door and look out the back door. And that, that was kind of what served as the hallway. It was living room. It was bedroom, 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 bathroom, kitchen, living room. We sat in her little living room, and 
somewhere, and she, she was, she was, um, she was a hardened farm girl, right? But she said to one, to one of those conversations, she said, you know, and I was asking her a bunch of questions about the early days when my father was young and that kind of stuff. She said, you know, probably if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have gotten married at 16. Which probably meant I probably wouldn't have married your grandfather. But I probably, you know, that was a regret that she had to a certain extent, that her life got defined so early and she didn't get a chance to explore a lot of things. I have the privilege of serving on the board of First Concern. It's a crisis pregnancy center over in Clinton. Many of the people who walk in the doors for that center to minister to them either regret that they have gotten pregnant or they have regret that they had an abortion in the past and they're trying to discover some ways to be healed from that. Life sometimes, we have these decisions that we've made that create tremendous regrets with us, for us. We had an instance in our own church, and I remember another instance where somebody changed jobs and literally within a few days they regretted that change. church I was in in during my seminary days, the church that I, I was on their staff, later there was a pastor there who resigned and he went to become a consultant and after three months he was back as their pastor because he regretted the choice that he had made. Sometimes we face those kinds of issues and, and the list could go on and on. I mean, I, I had a chance a few years ago and it, it, was a, it was a sad responsibility in many ways, but one of our youngest son's classmates in junior high school had been hit by a car while he was riding his bicycle just about dark here in Sterling, and it had killed him. And it was a young woman in her 20s with a child, and she had been distracted by trying to find her station on the radio and drifted to the middle, and he was out in the middle, and he hit her. Just, boy, just that moment of distracted driving, you just regret that decision forever. I... I I sat in a conference one time listening to Gordon McDonald, a, a tremendous Christian writer, a great preacher, a pastor of a church, but there was a moment in his journey well into his ministry where he, he had a moral failure and he regretted that moment of infidelity forever kind of idea. We, we sometimes regret choices we make, and so here, here but... We cannot deny the fact that the quality of our lives, the, the, the that, you know, that just, just what our experience is like is driven by the choices we make. So the real question is, how do we make more good choices and how do we make fewer bad choices, right? How do we get that 20% down to zero or as close to zero as we can get it? How do we raise that 80% up to 95, 96, 97, 98, 99? And that's what we're going to be looking at in our series together, which we begin today, called Key Choices to a Great Life. And I'm, I'm, all of you who know me know that I'm not smart enough to give you those answers on my own. <laughs> you know, you, you know that I don't have all those answers in and of myself. I'm not wise enough, I'm not smart enough, those kinds of things. But you know what? Praise the Lord, we got the Bible. And I want to introduce you to a guy today that we're going to listen to to get what God can share with us about making the key choices that really lead to a greater life. Let me describe this guy to you. Is this the kind of guy that you'd listen to for advice about how to make key choices for a greater, for, for, towards a great life? This is the guy who knew 
Jesus as well as anyone on the planet. He had been one of his constant disciples, a member of his inner circle, a guy who had witnessed all of his miracles, a guy who had experienced all of his teaching. He had been literally entrusted with the care of Jesus' earthly mother when Jesus left the planet. And he had been personally commissioned by Jesus to go and teach others what he had heard from him. That's, that's the guy we're going to listen to. What, he, what he's known as, his name to us is the Apostle John. And we're going to be in the book of 1 John for this series. And I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me over there. Many of you did not bring a Bible this morning. That's fine. You'll find one underneath your seat. And we'd love for you to grab that out. And you'll find our text today on page 1034. That's 1034. If you brought your own Bible, great. You're not exactly sure what 1 John is. Just get to the back of your Bible. You'll have Revelation, and then you'll hit Third John, I mean Jude, and then Third John, Second John, First John, right? So we, we encourage you to go there. And, and um, now not only does John have impeccable credentials to speak to us about this issue, because he's a guy who walked with Jesus, saw what Jesus had done, and had been empowered by Jesus, you know, knew all, you know, his background, his pedigree, his diploma on the wall gives him all the credibility in the world. But as he writes to us, and you'll notice that he doesn't address his letter to anybody in particular. It's an open, circular letter, applies to all believers of all times, including us today, sitting at 35 Chocolate Road in Sterling, Mass., in the middle of what used to be a cow field. God is still speaking to us through this text, and he says, I'm writing to you for four reasons. And he spreads those out to his books. One reason, he wants our joy to be full. If you don't want your joy to be full, you want to stay miserable, there's probably not a whole lot I can do for you right now. So. But he wants your joy to be full. Secondly, he says, I don't want you to do any more damage to your spiritual life. I, I don't want you to hurt yourself in your relationship with God. So I write these things so that you will no longer sin. He said, also, I want to equip you to stand against those who are going to try to deceive you about what's right and wrong in the eyes of God, about how to walk with God. And that comes out of the chest. And then the last thing he says, and I want to be, I write these things to you so that you can leave, live every single moment of every single day absolutely certain that you have eternal life. And that's not a bad guy to listen to, right? There's no ulterior motives. There's nothing underneath. I mean, this is what he wants to do. He wants our joy to be full, right? He, he wants us to know how to keep from hurting ourselves spiritually. He wants us to have enough wisdom and discernment to know what to accept and what to reject so we continue to make choices towards a great life. And then lastly, he wants us to be able to live every single day conscious of the fact that we have eternal life. So this guy's name is the Apostle John. Some texts, they call him the John the Elder. Now, we're doing a little bit of intro work, so stay with me because I am going to get to our first key choice today. But I, I want think first of all, that we need to understand what does John mean by a great life? And I want you to look at verses 1 through 4 with me, and I'll kind of pull out what John's understanding of a great life is. Because what, what we think is the destination is going to determine the choices we make along. So I, I want us to be clear about how we understand what a great life is. Okay? Now, John, John's a little different kind of writer than Paul. 
Some of you are very familiar with the New Testament. You do a lot of... Paul was more of a Western thinker. A, B, C, D, you know, just straight down. One, two, three, four. He's much more progressive. John writes more like a Hebrew. So say it, then say something different, then come back and say the first thing a little differently than you said the first time, and then say something. And so it kind of, it just kind of circles, right? So it can get a little harder as you go along. I mean, and some of you have noticed that as you've read through this, he, he kind of talks about love, and he moves on to another subject, and he comes back and talks about love again, and he moves on, and he comes back again. You know, he just kind of keeps evolving as he goes along and repeating it and building on it. But here's, here are these first four verses. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He, he's somewhat resisting a movement there that started to say, well, you know, Jesus really wasn't the same as us. He, he, you know, there was a, the beginning movements of what the church came to understand as Gnosticism, and they'd say, you know, Jesus was more like a ghost. You know, he didn't really have a physical body, that kind of idea. You know, that it was based on this idea that, that God really wouldn't have anything to do with the earthly world. You know, God is great, and God doesn't have anything to do with cockroaches and cow manure, you know. So God's just removed from all of that. And so they, they started looking, well, the physical is just not good. It's, it's, it's evil. So they, 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 they separate. So Jesus, if he's really the word, he, he didn't really come. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. John's saying, no, 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 we touched him. <laughs> you know, I wrestled with him. You know, we had some fun. You know, we pushed each other in the lake. You know, I'm, I'm elaborating. But anyway, so he's going on there. Then he has this, that life was revealed, came into the world. We've seen it. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So Jesus is eternal, and God has personally intervened in the person of his Son for our world. And what we've seen and heard, we also declare to you, and that's really the verb that drives this whole section, so that you may have fellowship with us because we are fellowshipping with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now this concept of fellowship is what drives John's understanding of what a great life is. Now, we, some of you have been around church life a long time like me. And we think of fellowship as brownies and some Kool-Aid, you know, and, 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 and you know, some little, little bun sandwiches that are stuffed in with some chicken. You know, that's the way we kind of think of fellowship. You know, we, we get together and we have a light meal together. Kind of, that's not what John's talking about at all. Though I don't mind those, because usually the brownies are pretty good. But that's not what he's talking about at all in this scenario. When he uses the word fellowship, he's using the word, the idea of sharing completely in or participating completely in. So he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you can have fellowship with us. In other words, so you can be experiencing the same thing we are because we are sharing fully in everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There's not a single benefit. There's not a single blessing. There's not a single aspect of forgiveness or of power or of grace or of joy or hope. We're fully participating in everything that God made available for us in Jesus Christ. And John says that's the great life. The great life is not, you know, have a certain amount of money in the bank when you retire and any of those kind of things. He says a great life is to live every single day experiencing everything that God has given us and released to us and allowed us to have as our own in Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the blessing, the forgiveness, the power that God is available to us in Jesus Christ 
John says, for us to experience and participate in and share in that completely is the great life. When we first started, we used to define it this way. Our mission as a church was to serve, engage, and, and love people and teach people in such a way that they experienced all God intended them to be. That's the great life. So John starts out his book, he's saying, listen, all this stuff you hear about Jesus and maybe he really wasn't real or this or that or you know, there's a physical man and then the word kind of came on him in his baptism and left before he's crucified. That's all garbage. He says, I've touched it, I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I know that, and this is why he came. And so you and I can have access to everything that God can give us in Jesus Christ. And that can be our daily experience. Anybody like that idea? Now, it's a journey, I understand that, but that's the way John understands the great life. And it is experiencing the great life or this sharing in or participation with the Father that actually leads to the full joy. It leads to the conviction every single day that we're living eternal life now. It leads to the strength to be able to say, you know what, I'm not going to hurt myself spiritually anymore by making these choices. I'm going to experience the freedom that comes from living beyond sin, without sin, and right on down the line. It, it, it's, a, it's an incredible journey. So, so what are some of the choices that he calls us to do? And, and he picks up this theme in verses 5 through 10. And, and, and I want to read these for you. And, and, and again, we're going to be in 1 John throughout this journey, so you may want to read through these five Verse, five chapters, kind of regularly in your, in your Bibles. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you a Bible when our, our, our service is over. But what is the first key choice to experiencing and living with the great life that God offers us in Jesus Christ? Let's pick up a little bit here in verse 5. Now this is the message we heard from him and we declare to you. Not my idea. Jesus gave this to me and we're passing it on to you. God is light. And there's absolutely no darkness in him. Now that imagery can mean one of two things. Just filling in a few blanks for us. God is light can be the idea that God is, is, is ethically, morally, or, or in terms of righteousness, he's absolutely pure. And that's probably where I land in that understanding. Others think of God as being self-revealing, that where every God, wherever God is, everything gets revealed, but the, the imagery there is that he reveals his righteousness, and he also reveals everything that's unrighteousness, unrighteous, so everything kind of moves back together, but God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. You know how like in your house when you, if you look underneath the couch, it's dark? Doesn't happen with God. There are no dark spots, you know? God's everywhere. The light's everywhere. If we say we have fellowship with him, in other words, if we say we're living the great life and sharing it and everything God's given us in Christ and we walk in darkness, we are lying and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself, that's a reference to Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not 
in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. May God add His blessing to the reading of His word. Now, John obviously seems to be just a bit fixated on sin in these verses, right? And, and part of the reason that's going on is because there was a movement. This is 70 years after Jesus died, right? So think about 70 years back in our culture. It's 1945, right? I mean, think about how much our world has changed in 70 years. I mean, back then, I mean, it was still, you know, we, we, we've invented the, the jet airplane, cell phone, you know, the list just goes right along, right? You know, it's, it's, it's amazing the transformation that's gone on and so true ethically. Back then, to, to get divorced was a major social, you know, um, a black mark on your life. Today, you see all the different changes that have gone with that. Seventy years after Jesus has died, there's been tremendous change. It is a group of people who are starting to teach, you know what, because we, we are physical and spiritual, and those two things aren't related. Part of the way that we can demonstrate how spiritual we are, how high up the spiritual chain we got, is we can go out and commit all kinds of sins and show that it doesn't really affect our spirit. And John's saying, you guys are, that, that is all wrong. I want to unlock this passage for us today related to a key choice that we need to make in order to experience the great life by picking up a teaching of Jesus that John heard that he recorded for us in his gospel. gospel was, his gospel was written right around the same time as this letter. Might have accompanied it as a kind of introduction and then the gospel followed. It was an expl explanation of what they had seen and heard and what they had touched, that kind of thing. And, and, and in chapter 8, verse 32, John stands there and he listens to Jesus say, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Did you notice in verse 8, the word truth. He said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I'm going to try to unpack this just a little bit for us, but in order for you and I to experience the freedom we have in Christ, we have to have the truth residing in us and a part of having the truth residing in us is that we have to be honest about where we are right now. We have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with ourselves. In some shapes, we need to be honest with those around us. But when we say we have no sin, because that's where John's pointing, when we deny what our current reality is, the truth is not in us. And when the truth is not in us, we are not set free. But when we are honest with where we're at, when we understand that we do have sin, and we're going to apply it to a couple of other things here in a minute, but when we accept current reality, if we confess that to God, He's faithful and just, He removes all of that, and He sets us free. So, the very first choice of experiencing this great life is being honest enough with who we are, where we're at, what's going on, so that Christ can set us free by what he's done. Now John here is focused on the issue of sin. 
not a bad place. Now, I'm not here to try to beat you up, make you feel bad, and all that kind of stuff. That, that's not my objective. Personally, my conviction, our church's conviction, is that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Yeah, there, there, there's none of us who are immune from this. None of us are in a place to say, well, you did this, but I've ne-, you know, we're, we're not. We're all in this together. But, but John is focusing in on this reason because P- this is a reality that is occurring in the life of the church. More and more are getting pulled away from it, and they're denying their current reality. And with that, the truth is being restricted in their lives and their freedom. What God can do for them in Christ, this great life that's available, is getting choked out because they refuse to deal with current reality. And he uses the issue of this emerging pattern of sin and celebrating sin as a place to go. Now, here's here's a couple issues, I think, that we have in dealing with current reality about our own lives in the area of sin. And we're going to apply it to another area in just a minute. But if you and I are in a place to say, you know, I really don't One of the ways we do that is we have a tendency to minimize the significance of our sin. Right? We, we, we said, you know, we, we admit our sin, but we don't confess our sin. The difference between those two. You know, we, we, we think through our lives and say, yeah, I stole my sister's bubble gum. You know, and I cheated on that math test in the ninth grade because I just didn't know the answer, and was, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I told a couple of white lies here and there. Yeah, I was speeding, and I lied to the cop, you know, whatever. None of that's big stuff, Right? They can't send you for jail for that stuff, and we, we have a tendency to minimize our sin just a little bit, right? Say, it's really not, yeah, God, I sinned, okay? I, I lied to you know, my parents about what time I got home on Friday night, you know? And we have a tendency to minimize some of that stuff. We admit it, but we don't really confess it. To confess sin is what Jesus asked us to do here through John. To confess sin means that we come into agreement with the way God sees our sin. And God sees our sin as being a black hole. I, I, I don't care if it's the kind of sin that will get you the electric chair or the kind of thing like pride and materialism, whatever, that our world has a tendency to even celebrate. God looks at it and he says, that is horrible. And when you and I minimize sin and just how important it is, how critical it is, the impact it has in our spiritual lives, we are denying current reality. And with that, we are, in some ways, resisting the freedom that God has given us by, God is seeking to give us by knowing the truth so the truth can set us free. Now, there's another end of this equation. And, and some of you sitting here today are living in this place. On one side, we have a tendency to minimize our sin. It's no big deal. You know, people do a lot worse stuff, that kind of stuff. And, and we don't take it very seriously. We're not really honest with God with it. We don't come with agreement to him about it. And therefore, we restrict the truth. The truth is really not in us about that. And the, and the freedom that comes from knowing the truth and the forgiveness that comes from, that comes from that is, is just squeezed out. But on the other end, there's some of us who maximize our sin. We exaggerate. We live in a place where we say, you know what? What I did can never really be forgiven. We, we live in a place where we say, you know, I have done something so dark, so horrible. I've, you know, if people really knew what I had done and what I was like and that kind of thing, that, that, that you know, God really can't 
love me. You, you see this coming out in the prodigal son, right? He, he, you know, the, we, we studied that story, the parable back in the spring, and the prodigal son asks his father for his inheritance, takes it, he goes, spends it on riotous living. He finds himself serving pigs, you know, which is just horrendous for a, a Jewish person. And he says, you know what, I'm going to go back to my dad, and the thing I'm going to tell my dad is, you know what, I'm no longer worthy. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. And a lot of us, we, we feel like we're in the pig pen, and we say that to God, and when God tries to put the robe on us and put the ring back on us, like happens in that story, to bring us back into the family, we say, no, 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 I'm not wearing that. And we just don't let God do it. A couple years ago, I sat in my office with a woman. She was significantly older than me. She'd come a few times, and she was, I asked her to come by and see me during office hours so we could have just a chance to get to know each other. I wanted to hear a little bit about her story. And she was unpacking part of her life, and I was encouraging her to get more involved in the life of the church and experience some of the, the truth that could lead to the real freedom and that kind of stuff. And, and she looked at me. She said, you know, no, 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 you don't understand. I've really done some bad stuff. And I said, you know, I, I believe that. But I don't believe there's anything that God's grace can't forgive and heal and make you into a new person. No, 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 no. You don't know. I've done some really bad stuff. And there's many times that people are replaying the tape in their minds, and they're looking at those moments where they've had this incredible sense of failure or whatever, or, or back then it was something they wanted, but now it's just so abhorrent or whatever. And, and they're in a position to say, yeah, you know, this just ever, really can't be forgiven. And, and sometimes we're living in that place, we, and we're, we're denying that current reality. Say, well, I've admitted it to God, but we haven't accepted the reality that we're saying, but, but I believe that God can't forgive me. And when we pull that truth out into the light, the scriptures can shout out and say, that is ludicrous, because there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's not believing that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for all of our other sins. And we get held hostage by our current reality because we're just afraid to see it. And so we, we deal with this issue of sin sometimes, this, this being honest enough about our current reality that we can have the truth actually in us and impact us so that the truth can set us free. Free to the great life, the full benefit of everything that God wants to give us in Jesus Christ. And we do that by minimizing our sin or sometimes by maximizing, exaggerating it to such a place that we really can't experience forgiveness. Don't live in those places. Don't live in those places. But John's focused in on, on the issue of sin because of the context that he's speaking to in that day and the churches that he cared for. I think there's another area where we struggle with current reality. Some of us, because of our backgrounds, we, we come to a moment like today with tremendous brokenness and damage in our lives. We, we've had people who have abused us. We've had somebody who's, that we care about who's been abused or whatever, and there's just this, there's this brokenness, and, and, and we get to a place where we believe that we just can't ever really be healed of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying make it go away. I'm not saying not own it, but... but we get to a place where we really believe that God just can't put me back to a place together where in the midst of my circumstances, I really can experience the great life. 
And I got to tell you that when we live in this place, that somehow or another our experience is more powerful than God's truth to set us free. It's, it's, I'm not minimizing experiences. You know, I, I you know, it, we've we've had some conversations lately with various folks who, who you know, they were abused as children and et cetera, and it, it has this powerful grip. And and sometimes. We, we, we just need to be honest enough to say, you know what, God, I, I've been acting as though you cannot deal with this, that this is beyond you. And, and we need to be honest enough with that current reality to allow that, say, you know, we say, God, it's, not, it's like we say, if we say we're so broken that God can't heal us, then the truth is not within us, and then God cannot set us free. It's an interesting, there's a tremendous psalm and. Some of you, maybe this is relevant for you to write down today, but I just want to do one verse out of Psalm 147. Psalm 147. The book of Psalms is almost smack dab in the middle of your Bibles. If you're using one of our pew Bibles today, it's on page 531. Now, Now, this is in the context of God putting the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, back together. And I just want you to hear verse 3. He, God, He heals the brokenhearted. He heals the brokenhearted. Our current reality to refuse that God actually heals our damaged, broken hearts, things that happened to us that we didn't deserve, we, God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And when we embrace the reality that says to God, you can't heal me, then the truth really isn't in us and the truth can't really set us free. Now, underlying all of this is this God just has this this passion to set us free. God has this passion to set us free. I, I, I know this is a very heavy message in a lot of ways, but I gotta tell you, you you cannot embrace the future that God is seeking to give you in Jesus Christ, this great life, if you keep holding on to the past and not letting God let you let go of it. A number of years ago, Christina and I were visiting at my parents' place in Florida. Um, they lived on the water in those days. And it's a long story, but I had this bright idea to take my five-year-old child out on the sunfish when the wind was blowing about 50 miles an hour in the bay. And uh, needless to say, the little sailboat went sideways, not forward, because the wind was just too overwhelming. And it landed up on the dock. And in the midst of me trying to control it, because it belonged to my uncle and not to me, and not wanting to damage it, I cut my leg on a barnacle that was on the side of the dock. And it, so I had this big gash on the side of my leg. And I, I remember, you know, I don't do well with blood, okay? Just, I'm about honest up front. I, I don't do well with blood. So, you know, I pass or whatever. Christina drives me out to the ER, that kind of stuff. And they take a look at it. And, and I remember lying there, and, and it needed like, you know, a half a dozen stitches to kind of put it all back together, you know, and that kind of idea. And, and the very first thing they did before they started to stitch it is they got three or four needles full of saline solution, and they went around the wound and started shooting the saline. It's a wonderful image, right? You know, you guys are going to look, man, I'm glad I went to church today, you know, kind of idea. But, you know, and, and they started shooting in this 
in the, the saline solution, and you can literally see it coming out through the wound, you know? And I'm starting to get, uh, you know, all over again kind of idea, and ready to pass out. What were they trying to do? They're trying to make sure that anything that could cause infection didn't get trapped inside. God's no different. He, he wants to give us this incredible life. He wants us to experience every single blessing, every single benefit, everything he can give us. Well, I mean, why would he bother to send our son, his son, into the world for us to experience an abundant life if he's going to allow us to keep a bunch of garbage in our lives that keep festering in affection and robbing us of our joy? And God says, so be honest about where you're at because then the truth can speak to it and it can set you free what Christ has done for us on the cross. So I invite you to make that first choice today. Be honest before God with where you're at. If you need to ask for his forgiveness because you've been minimizing sin, do it. If, you've been, if, you, if you need to confess to God that you've been exaggerating your sin and saying this is just not forgivable, you, you need to do it. If you've been saying I'm so broken and so hurt that God can't really heal me up, you need to be honest enough and, and, and set that free and experience God's grace, his healing that's available in Jesus Christ and begin the journey of experiencing the freedom that leads to the great life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Got a lot of heavy stuff this morning. I pray, Father, that you would help us to internalize it in such a way with your spirit that we can, in a very fresh and real way, experience the overwhelming power of your grace today in our lives. That we would experience a fresh awareness that you love us unconditionally. That there's nothing going on, there's nothing that we've done, etc., that you can't deal with if we will just bring it before you in the spirit of honesty and allow you to set us free through Jesus Christ. So God, lead us to this choice. This choice to be honest with you so that the truth can set us free. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our worship team's going to come, and we're going to sing a, just a final song of celebration to the Lord this morning. Uh, it's also uh, an opportunity for us to give express our love for the Lord through our, our tithes and our offerings, and so our ushers will come and receive our, our offering. You can also place your connection cards in there so we can pray with you, with you throughout the course of the week. Let's stand together as we sing and conclude our service today.